Another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing in another short and concise episode of our year of polygamy. Doesn't that sound like fun? A year of polygamy, where we spend the year delving into issues of Mormon polygamy to help people digest and understand the issues surrounding polygamy. This, of course, is going to be episode five. So if you're starting here, I would recommend that you go to episode one, where we start with Fanny Alger. We plan to walk you through all of these issues the entire year and hopefully give you a better understanding of polygamy, contextualize it, and let you make up your own mind of where you stand. Today we are highlighting and profiling one of the wives, the plural wives of Joseph Smith. This particular wife has quite a mouthful. We're going to be talking about Presindia Huntington Buell. Now, if you listened to our last episode, you might have heard about Zina Huntington Jacobs. This happens to be her sister. Presindia was born on September 7, 1810 in Waterton, Jefferson County, New York. She would be the fourth of ten children and from an early age is really known for her spirituality. So if you pay attention to her story, you're going to see how this kind of comes into place. Presindia is a very spiritually driven woman almost mystical. She was said to experience a saving change of heart at the age of 11 and was even said to be cured from inflammatory rheumatism by her equally religious mother. The two of them shared this very spiritual bond. At age 16, she was pretty young, but she marries Norman Buell. They moved from Lorraine, New York, to the nearby town of Mansville. Presidia would have been used to a farmer's life, as that's how she grew up with her family. And the move was difficult because she moves from a more agricultural place to a more industrialized community. And the change is really hard for her. It causes her great loneliness and depression during during those early years. She's further away from family. She's used to being sort of in this very spiritual home. And, of course, this industrialized life was a lot more congested and a lot dirtier in its own way. So this was really difficult for her. She gives birth to her first son, George, on December 12th, 1829. So she would have been she would have been 19 years old with her first. Norman sold his machinery and moved the family to a farm after the birth because he knows he's re- she's really struggling. So this was good for Presindia. She seems more at home, and then she was able to kind of do the things she liked to do. She spinned wool, she made feather beds, she milked the cows, all the things that she did from her child that were said to bring her comfort. Todd Compton, in his book Sacred Loneliness, which I highly recommend you buying, writes, quote, Here on December 25th, 1831, a second son, Silas, was born. Presindia was now seemingly launched on a peaceful, happy career as a mother and farm wife. Two years later, however, on November 13, 1833, she experienced the first of many tragedies in her life. She was boiling down cider in a very large brass kettle and put it on an adjoining room where, unknown to her, Silas wandered in and accidentally fell into the kettle. One imagines the boy's screams and Presindia frantically pulling him out of the boiling cider, then desperately trying to treat her wounded, disfigured child. She tended him for 13 hours as he suffered excruciating pain, but then died. For the first time, she experienced the agonizing grief of losing a child. 
No one but a mother can realize the sorrow of an accidental death, she later wrote. End quote. So she loses her son, but in such a horrific way that she has to deal with. Now, um, it's odd, not that there's any correlation here, but I've been reading Utah period polygamy narratives, and there seems to be, I mean, if you know anything about 19th century, there was a lot of, this was this was not a completely uncommon accident to have um, people die in boiling water or be spilled with uh, boiling burns or fall in boiling lye. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible way. It's a slow way to die. And it's just a terribly painful thing to watch. Shortly after this incident, which I'm sure would mark you for the rest of your life, that's a terrible thing to go through, Presindia suffers through an extremely difficult pregnancy that was said to be made worse by the grief and the death of Silas. She became extremely ill but bore her third son, Thomas Dimmick, on March 8th. She survived the birth, but unfortunately Thomas did not. Devastated and depressed, her husband sold the farm because of the bad memories it possessed, and they moved back to the factory in Lorraine. Presidia's sister, Zina Baker Huntington, who we talked about in our last episode, had converted to Mormonism and introduced Presidia to the Mormon church. Presidia writes, quote, I felt it was true and thought I would keep the word of wisdom and obtain the blessings promised, end quote. Now, it's interesting because the word of wisdom at this time wouldn't have been considered a commandment like it is now. Uh, it was a list of suggestions. There's a whole history you can read about the word of wisdom. We kind of um, interpret it a lot differently now. As you know, many of the early saints drink coffee and they drink beer made from barley. Uh, Joseph Smith drank it in Carthage jail the night that he died. Uh, he would drink it with his plural wife. So it was really something interpreted different than we interpret it now. And that's a really interesting history if you want to look that up. So Presidia and her husband Norman joined the church in 1836 in Kirtland, and they journeyed with Joseph Smith's wagon company to Missouri and then later to Illinois. That fall of her conversion, she gives birth to another child, Chauncey D., but the child dies within a month of his birth. So she has one out of... She has one living child out of four, and you can imagine the grief that she's felt. Presidia records several Pentecostal experiences following her conversion to the church, including glossinalia, which is uh, speaking in tongues, seeing angels and visions, and hearing heavenly choirs and rushing winds, which would not be an uncommon experience for a lot of the early saints who all report Pentecostal sort of experiences. Speaking in tongues, glossinalia was considered, mostly considered, a female spiritual gift, and um, it was something that she experienced often. Presidia spoke and she prophesied with confidence. She would give blessings to the male members of the church. In 1849, she gave Joseph Hovey a blessing where she promised him exaltation. And now you can imagine that that's something of a sort of patriarchal nature of a blessing to promise someone their exaltation. But this is this is how Presindia worked. She was a very spiritually um, confident and motivated person. She writes, quote, On one occasion I saw angels clothed in white walking upon the temple. This is in Kirtland, Ohio. It was during one of those four-month fast meetings when the saints were in the temple worshiping. A little girl came to my door and in wonder called me out, exclaiming, The meeting is on top of the house! I went to the door, and there I saw in the temple angels clothed in white, covering the roof from end to end. They seemed to be walking to and fro, and they appeared and disappeared. The third time they appeared and disappeared, before I realized they were not mortal men. 
Each time in a moment they vanished, and their reappearance was the same. This was in broad daylight in the afternoon, end quote. Her husband, Norman, had a falling out with the church and was deemed an apostate. Although Prezindia remained faithful, um, she's, they still stayed together, and she gave birth to a daughter, a daughter, Adeline Elizabeth. But again, the child only lives for a few hours. After a lot of trials and threats from the mob, Prezindia is again pregnant, and she gives birth to another child, Oliver Norman, who survives. The family moves to, to Lima, Illinois, near Nauvoo. In October 1841, Joseph married her sister, Zina. So we have that whole story in the last episode. And shortly after, he will soon present this doctrine to Prezindia. Prezindia's biographer, Emmeline B. Wells, who uh, is a very famous, notable person in the church, who we will also cover in the future, writes that in the fall of 1841, quote, Joseph himself taught the principle of plural marriage to Sister Prezindia. She knew Joseph Smith to be a man of God, and consequently, she accepted the sealing ordinance with Joseph as a sacred and holy confirmation, end quote. So Prezindia gets taught this, this doctrine. She marries Joseph Smith on December 11, 1841. As with Zina, Prezindia's brother Dimmick performed the ceremony. Now, Joseph would often do this. He would uh, choose someone within the inner circle of the family. He would oftentimes have, it would like in many cases of his plural wives, he would approach the brother of the of the wife that or the woman that he wanted to marry, and he would have them at first break the idea to them, kind of get it in their head, and then he would later take them the woman out on a walk alone and have a conversation with her about it. So you can imagine that Prezindi was already set up to hear this principle because, you know, Dimmick had married Zina, and so she has two of her siblings that are now into the secret exclusive uh, principle that also brought them into the inner circle, the higher society of Nauvoo. Another brother, Oliver, wrote, quote, Dimmick had given our sister Zina and Prezindia to Joseph as wives. So he was the one that kind of gave them away. In return, Joseph offers him any reward he wants. He, he promises Dimmick, uh, you can have anything, including eternal salvation. Dimmick replies, quote, that where you and your father's family are, there I and my father's family may also be, end quote. So again, you know, we just learned about Prezindia with all of her babies dying. This was something that I that I alluded to in some of the other podcasts. But this was a frontier time when people died quite easily and people would leave for good. Communication was not fast or quick. If you said goodbye to somebody, you might be saying goodbye to them forever. And so one of the beautiful things and the alluring things about this new church was this doctrine of sealing. Now, of course, this wasn't exclusive to the LDS church, you have a lot of Campbellite influences and um, other other contemporary religions that are starting up that have these similar sort of eternal um, bonds, uh, plans of happiness sorts of things that are very similar. But uh, Joseph was unique in that he explained the afterlife in this sort of sealing sort of way. And so he would later be uh, doing what we call the law of adoption where he would seal himself to men as well. As brothers, so the idea was you loved the prophet a lot, you believed in his doctrine, and you wanted your family to be with his, and so Dimmick saw himself as sealing his sisters was kind of ensuring his own family's eternal life. Prezindia continues to live with her first husband Norman, and it's unclear whether he knew of the marriage or not. In November 1843, she she has her seventh child, John Hiram, and he would pass a year pass away a year later. Only two of Prezindia's children 
would survive. Uh, Joseph Smith dies in the summer of 1844. And remember how I talked about these three counselors of Joseph's, Brigham, Heber, and Amasa Lyman, step up and say, we will do our duty for Brother Joseph and take you as our spiritual wives and do a favor and keep having his seed for you. And and I, I shall say that all of the men, those three men interpreted it differently, but Brigham Young would later come to resent some of his wives because he considered the, the children that he would give to these women as Joseph's children, and he often resented the burden of having to take care of them because he considered them to be Joseph's spiritual children. Uh, Presindia would marry Heber C. Kimball. She continues to live with her first husband, Norman, until May of 1846. Her brother, Oliver, writes, quote, Presindia's husband would not follow the church any longer, so she left him and followed after her lord, which would be Kimball. He writes Kimball. Um, lord meaning Heber C. Kimball, not God. End quote. Presidia took her six-year-old son, Oliver, with her, leaving behind her 16-year-old son, George, and her husband, Norman. Of the experience, Presidia writes, quote, No tongue can tell my feelings in those days of trial, but I had considered well, and I felt I would rather suffer and die with the saints than live in Babylon. So you can see how she framed it, that, uh, you know, her husband's this apostate, he's living with Babylon, in Babylon, and she feels so strongly about this that she decides to leave her 16-year-old son with her husband. Norman tries unsuccessfully to find Presindia as she leaves. By 1848, he locates her in winter quarters, Nebraska, living with the other Mormons who are migrating to the Salt Lake Valley. Presindia's brother Oliver writes, quote, Norman Buell had been up to winter quarters on a visit and wanted she should not marry, but wait a while, and he would come over to the valley and be glad to live with her again, end quote. Norman was apparently unaware of Presindia's marriage to Kimball because he's asking her not to get married again, meaning not to marry another Mormon man. He wants her back. And he offers to accompany her to Utah even, and he was refused. On June 25th, Henry Jacobs wrote to Zion, and quote, N. Buell is almost crazy. He has been up here, end quote. So you can see that he was almost desperate to not let her go away with the Mormons. We know that she is no longer interested in Norman, and that could be complicated. We don't have a lot of documentation on that marriage, but we do know that Heber C. Kimball took her on, and Heber C. Kimball would marry 45 women in the rest of his life, and many of them would divorce him. He would have trouble providing for them. In spite of his status in the church, he would be a very poor man. As they travel to Utah, Presindia feels the burden of sharing a husband with many other women because now the principle is really taking off. They're living it openly. Heber is acquiring a lot of women. She writes, quote, I was in a new wild country without means, end quote. She turns to house cleaning, school teaching, midwifery, and healing when she arrives in Frontier, Utah. She was said to have a real gift with this. She healed little children and sick members of the church. She did a lot of blessings and anointings. She whittled away her loneliness by spending time with her sister Zina and the other wives of Kimball's and Brigham Young's. So even though they were poor, she did maintain a certain status having been married to Joseph. That was a very key thing in this sort of like social hierarchy of frontier Utah. And being married to Heber also helped her too. Um, on January 9th, 1849, Presindia gives birth to a little 
girl, Presindia Celestia, and wrote that the girl, quote, came near to perishing but survived. After supper, Brother Kimball came in, the father of the child, and blessed it, calling it Presindia, end quote. And that's, a, that's an interesting way that she frames the husband. She calls him Brother Kimball, the father of the child. So it's a different distinction. It's certainly sort of distance from the intimacy of her earlier marriage. If you go to the link I provided, there's um, a picture that is said to be the oil painting of Presindia Kimball from 1850. You know, Presindia's life is kind of marked in tragedy. Shortly after this little girl, Presindia Celestia, turns one, Heber C. Kimball has this prophetic dream that a serpent carries away one of his children, and he is so moved and upset by it that he wakes up and he sets off to warn all of his wives about this vision. Not long after he has this dream, little Presindia Celestia drowns, drowns in City Creek. Presindia says, quote, I ran across the street to Dr. Williams. They brought her in dead, did all they could to restore her life, but the vital spark had fled. My tongue turned cold in my mouth. I felt like I felt that I was dying. So again, she's lost so many children, and here she loses her beloved little Presindia um, Celestia in another tragic, horrible way. Elder John R. Young recalled, quote, After President Young and Kimball moved onto their lots, this path connected their two homes. One day, Aunt Presindia Kimball's little daughter, Celestia, unknown to her mother, started to go to Aunt Zina's. It was in the spring of the year, and City Creek was swollen by the melting snows. The child evidently slipped off the slab and was drowned. As soon as the family missed her, a cry of alarm was given. I was confined to the house with a painful flesh wound in my left leg. Hearing the tumult and seeing the excited people running along the creek, I surmised what had happened. Running to the slab, I dropped into the water and was carried by the swift current to Brother Wells' lot, where the fence had caught floodwood and formed a dam and eddy. I dove under the drift and, finding the body, brought it to the surface and gave it to Dr. Williams. But the precious life was gone. End quote. The death affects her so greatly that Presindia becomes ill, very ill, and almost dies. But she leans again on her faith and is restored by revelations and visions. And again becomes pregnant in 1851. So she's had a multiple number of pregnancies that usually bring her more tragedy than they do joy. This time she gives birth to a healthy boy, Joseph Smith Kimball, that December. This helps to restore her, um, her health and her vitality a little bit. And she continues to work and serve amongst the community within the communal homes of Heber's, Heber's wives. In the spring of 1856, during the famous grasshopper famine, everyone had to live on half rations. Presendia records, quote, I asked the Lord in prayer to take away my appetite and give me strength to keep up without it so that I might give my rations to the poor children who had nothing. Strange as it may seem, the Lord heard and answered my prayers. I was unable to keep up my usual strength with scarce any food at all, and the desire of my heart was granted me that I might impart my share to those who had none. In that dreadful time, many were with the scenes of distress pitiful to relate, and some were not able to endure the severe test of their faith and apostatized from the church and went away. Some lived on nothing but roots and greens for weeks together. Verily, it was a time of trial that pierced men's souls to hear one's children crying for bread without a morsel to give 
is something that even strong men shrink from, and the tender hearts of mothers in times like these are torn with anguish, end quote. On June 27, 1859, Prisindia and several friends climbed Ensign Peak to, commem- to commemorate the death of their second husband, Joseph Smith. Quote, we offered up our prayers to God and thanks that he had raised up a prophet in these last days and the gospel had been restored to the earth and that we had been of the few that had received the truth, end quote. On February 1st, 1892, Prisindia passes away at the age of 81, which is a great feat to live that long through all of that trial and tragedy. In her autobiographical sketch, she records, quote, Neither in my life in this kingdom, which is 44 years, have I doubted the truth of this great work. Revealed in these the last days, I have buried seven of my children, all in their infancy, but two living. I hope to honor my God, my religion, and myself, and be prepared to meet the many loved ones behind the veil. End quote. Whew, that's a hard one to get through. Um, one full of tragedy, but you can imagine how such trial and tragedy would almost radicalize your faith and help you really hold to this idea of Zion, this idea of ceilings, this idea of eternal family life. And I imagine that that brought her great comfort and helped her kind of um, understand her worldview. She would have had to cross the plains, do the whole pioneer thing, be in Nauvoo, see the mobs, come across the plains, and then live in a very frontier, rugged, harsh, harsh life. And... um I imagine that that would steal your soul to the faith. And that is exactly what it did with Prisindia. So I thank you for joining us on another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast for the year of polygamy. And um, we hope you're enjoying the series. Please go ahead and leave your comment sections, your comment in the comment section at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. And we look forward to profiling more of these stories.